Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, greetings. Welcome to the final section of the Life and Letters of Paul, where we will jump into the actual letters. And we will be doing an overview of... um, what I am going to call sections uh, of um, Paul and his writings. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, some setup, if you will, in today's lesson. And then we're going to jump into uh, the first two books in which, or first three books, excuse, excuse me, uh, in which we will, we will um, get our feet wet as we look at this. Before we uh, jump into that, however, let's uh, begin by praying. Father, we uh, once again seek your face. We seek your insight. We seek your wisdom. God, we seek your comfort. We know that your comfort comes through your written word uh, as you speak to us in our daily lives. And so, God, we pray that you will speak words of hope Speak words of faith and love into our lives as we rest in you. So God, we are incredibly grateful for what it is that you are doing in us and through us. And God, we pray that you will continue that until the day of Christ Jesus is revealed fully in all of his glory. And we shall be with him. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. So we are um, trying to figure out a way to get you some of the materials um, uh, to have them available to you. Um, I'm going to do my best to describe some of these things. Um, I have a chart um, that I use that breaks down the books of the New Testament that Paul wrote. And they coincide with a time frame as well as uh, a chapter um, reference to the book of Acts. Um, so uh, remember, the book of Acts is happening concurrently with the writing of many of these letters in some cases, uh, or sometimes um, after. Um, so it's important to recognize sometimes if we need to know the history of what's happening, we can go to the book of Acts. So the three books that we're going to be looking at today uh, Galatians and then First and Second Thessalonians would occur between the chapters of 13 and 18, um, assuming that you date Galatians with an early date, which is what we are going to assume for our purposes that Galatians coincides uh, with that early date. And in in all of these cases, um, this is a uh, a period of conflict within the church. Um, so while I will use that term and, and it might not be the best term, but it's the best that I could come up with, uh, but it defines what is happening in the church. I think it's important that we remember that as the church grew, it grew out of Judaism. Early believers were Jews. And so early Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. So very early on in the church, we had Um, this period of conflict that involved Jewish-Gentile conflict. How were Jewish believers 
and Gentile believers to get along, were the Gentile believers to act like Jews, were the Jews to act like Gentiles, and, and how much of the law was to be obeyed. And so there was this conflict, and the conflict isn't really settled until the book, uh, until chapter 15 of the book of Acts, in which there is a clarification from uh, the, the Jerusalem church. And so we call this period of these first three books, or I do, the Jewish the period of Jewish Gentile conflict and false teachers. So there are many, many false teachers that are running around that oftentimes when Paul is writing, he is uh, reminding the churches of the truth that he shared with them when he was with them and re-clarifying that because some false teacher has come in behind him and shared something differently. I said last week that we would be looking at these books uh, in relation to their um, relationship to Paul's focus of his theology, which was reconciliation. So, for instance, as we look at the, the book of Galatians, we're going to be looking at the means of rec reconciliation. How do we actually take part in this reconciliation that Paul offers? And then as we look at uh, 1 Thessalonians, we'll look at the misuse of that reconciliation uh, and then the mode of reconciliation. I'll, I'll try and keep them all inwards. Um, Philippians was the only one that I wasn't able to do that with. Um, but I, I will come back to those. Uh, so again, the book of Galatians will be the means of reconciliation. The other thing that I think is important to look at is there is a style that early Hellenistic letters or epistles um, hold to. That is, there was always a greeting. There was always an extended greeting. Um, then there was a, a writing about Thanksgiving. And then there was a uh, generally the body of the letter. Um, and then some type of closing remarks. And so in Paul's letter, the form tends to look like this. There is always a greeting. There is always a section in which Paul offers grace and peace. Um, sometimes, not always, sometimes it's, it's expanded, but grace is almost always in there. Grace and peace. Then there is a section of thanksgiving in which Paul is going to give them some type of commendation regarding faith, hope, or, and love. So... Uh, where we are right now. The greeting is always X to Y. And to give you an example of that, if you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. Okay, so that's the X. That's who this letter is from. And then he says, to the churches in Galatia. So sometimes that X to Y is going to be expanded. It's not just Paul to Timothy. Sometimes it's going to be more information in there. Um, but generally speaking, it's always X to Y. And then you get into the grace and peace. If you look at verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this uh, grace and peace generally is an explanation of how the current letter is going to, or, or the particular subject that's being covered is going to relate to God's grace and peace, specifically in, re in the reconciliation theology. How is it that God's grace and peace are applied in reconciliation in this particular instance? There are a few circumstances, Galatians being one, where the thanksgiving isn't there. There is no commendation regarding faith, hope, and love. So Paul just immediately jumps into 
the subject of the letter and where his frustration is. Um, but generally speaking, uh, we're going to have that Thanksgiving. And then the body of the letter, typically in Paul's letters, is always broken into two sections. Um, I like to use the terms uh, indicative and imperative. Some people will use doctrinal and practical. So the indicative is always the reason. It's a clarification of the reconciliation process. Um, it oftentimes will use the word since. So there is a section in which we are all very familiar with. If you uh, We just memorized this when we were going through the book of Colossians. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. So that is a summary of Paul's indicative or doctrinal point. You have been raised with Christ. Um, indicative simply means, as it might sound, that Paul is just indicating what is going on. So as Paul indicates what is happening, he's giving us an idea of uh, his particular um, subject matter. And then he will go on to what we call the imperative, which is the command, the bossy word. It's the practical section. Then, or therefore, is a word that is often used. So again, if you look back at Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. The the then is implied. Since you have been raised with Christ, then set your heart on things above. So you have this very um, bossy section in which Paul tells the believers how they ought to live. And it is generally a command to practice one of three things, faith, hope, or love, uh, or to build upon uh, that clarification process that has occurred. And then finally, there's the benediction in which Paul offers his closing remarks. He says his hellos, his goodbyes. Um, he generally will offer some type of um, magnification of who God is in relation to this because uh, part of Paul's idea, and I think this is important that we understand, that when we read these things and learn these things, it challenges us, it changes us, and causes us to worship God in a deeper and more meaningful way. So we have the greeting, then we have grace and peace section, the thanksgiving section, the body, which is broken down into the indicative and the imperative, and then finally the benediction. One final thing I might say, and I think this is important, um, the imperative in Paul's mind, that is the bossy words, the idea of what we're going to do, is always couched in the idea of the indicative. We don't do just to do. We do because God has done something. Because there is something that God has done in this reconciliation process that causes us to want to do these things. And so that's something that's very important that uh, you will catch on to as you read through these books. So as we look at the books, we're going to look at several different sections. Uh, first thing that we will look at is the overarching theme. Again, it's, it's um, relevance to the idea of reconciliation. Uh, we'll look at the church and the city and any specifics there that might be important to that letter. We will look at the general themes and topics or the issues that are being dealt with. And then 
we will look at a summary of Paul's argument. And I think it's important to recognize that generally what Paul is doing is he is making an Aristotelian argument for something. And, you know, this is this, therefore, this is how we ought to live. And then finally, the audience. Who was Paul writing to? So as we jump into the book of Galatia, first of all, we have to understand that the some a few important things is that this church is growing out of Jewish roots. And so uh, Galatia may be the epicenter of where this Jewish-Gentile conflict is originating from, certainly Jerusalem, but we know many of the believers at Jerusalem were scattered because of the, the persecution that was occurring. And so they were leaving, and they may have gone to this area in uh, southern Turkey that we call the... Uh, the region of Galatia, and in, in reality, it's the province of so the southern area in places like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Derby, and Perga, where Paul would have visited on his first missionary journey. So because this church grows from Jewish roots, it's a very natural for the susceptibility towards combining Judaism with the gospel, the idea that there are festivals, there are dietary laws, and especially when you have Jews who are sitting watching Gentiles eat whatever they want to, um, the Jewish people might say, hey, you know, you have to abide by these laws just like we do. And so more than likely what you have is this conflict that is growing. And especially in the context of suffering. When people came to Christ, it meant suffering, it meant isolation. And so many times their only friends were those that were around them in the church. And and so you had this idea of everybody wanted to get along, everybody wanted to make everyone happy, and so oftentimes people would turn away from the truth that they knew simply to keep somebody else happy. And so that was uh, one of the primary issues that is going on in the book of Galatians. Some of the themes or the topics that Paul deals with as he's going through is the idea of grace versus self-righteous works. And as he talks about this, it's going to be in the context that the way that we access grace is through faith. It's not through works. Remember that um, historic declaration by the Reformers that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, according to the scriptures, to the glory of God. And so you have this idea that we access grace, or the means by which we access grace, is through faith. Uh, another topic that is very key is freedom. But the question is, it's freedom from what? Um, Paul said, will say it is for freedom that you have been set free. Um, but we can look at this and we can say, does that mean that we throw off all restriction? Uh, one of the things that we talked about, as we were talking about Paul as a man and, and a minister, he was the only person that was uniquely qualified to bring together the two aspects of Christian faith, which is, how can I find righteousness outside of the law? And then finally, how can I find happiness inside of restriction, inside of righteousness or the law. And so Paul is uniquely positioned to be able to do that. And he says the way that that is described to us is this freedom and that it's going to be a freedom from enslavement to the works that supposedly produce righteousness 
and freedom to true righteousness, which is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of things that the Spirit is going to, going to produce. And so the final theme is to live by the Spirit. Uh, and obviously we have this declaration of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So if we break down Paul's argument, it really is um, a pretty simple argument to break down. Um, it is that the, the gospel is supernatural in origin, means, and practice. In origin, the gospel doesn't come from Paul. It doesn't come from the apostles, but rather it comes from Christ. Christ is the one who has delivered the gospel once and for all to all mankind. And so the gospel origination is supernatural. So why would we think that we could have anything to do with it if its origin is supernatural? Not only is its origin supernatural, but the means of the gospel is supernatural. It comes by faith. Uh, here Paul uses Abraham as an example who, when God comes to him and asks him to do something, uh, Paul says, Abraham believed the promise prior to obeying God. And it was in that that he was declared to be righteous. Righteous. It was the fact that he believed the promise. Not that he obeyed the promise, but he believed the promise. And then finally, in practice, the gospel is supernatural in that it produces freedom to hear the Spirit. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that we have this inability to perceive the gospel as good news, just like we have the inability to hear the Spirit. And so, the gospel, when it is applied to our life and when um, we access it by means of faith, it produces the ability of the Spirit making us able to hear. And so now we are able to walk by the Spirit. We're able to live by the Spirit. And then the Spirit is going to produce the fruit of righteousness in our life that the gospel provides. And so again, Paul's argument is that the gospel is supernatural in origin means and practice and so we can say that in Paul uh, according to his theology of reconciliation that the means of reconciliation according to Paul is the gospel and it is faith in the gospel that is going to produce uh, this reconciliation process. The audience that Paul is writing to is people who live in the Galatian province um, it is called Galatians because of its uh, uh, because of its association with the the people of the Gaul, uh, so it's sort of tied in with France, and it would coincide with Paul's first missionary journey to places like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, uh, and Perga as well. So we have these um, this area in which Paul is uh, working towards bringing the people of Galatia, to an understanding of the fact that they can rest in the gospel through faith. It is a belief in what God has done that will produce what we can do, which is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, righteousness. And so all of these things are going to come from what God has already done in us. That is the essence of Paul's argument in, Gal in the book of Galatians.
as we turn our attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the uh, book of 1 Thessalonians coincides with the time frame of uh, more than likely the Jerusalem Council. And again, this, Ju- this period of conflict that we call the Jewish-Gentile conflict. But the issue in the book of Thessalonians, both uh, uh, books of Thessalonians, is more the false teachers. There is a group of people that have come in and have begun teaching something other than what Paul had taught originally when he was uh, establishing the church at Thessalonica. And, and there is a concern in the people of the church of Thessalonica. And Paul is going to uh, write to that in a very specific way, addressing that specific issue. Uh, if there is a focus of Paul in reconciliation towards uh, particularly the book of Thessalonians, it is the misuse of reconciliation. It's the idea that people are going to utilize the freedom that comes from our relationship with Christ to be able to share things that aren't true, and in in particular to, to cause them to question some very basic things. As we jump into the, the church in the city, first of all, Thessalonica was a large commercial city located on a, on a major highway or thoroughfare. It was called the Via Ignatia. And it was a major place where people would come and go. It had a large Jewish population, also a, a large population of God-fearing Gentiles. And so um, this city is, is rather unique in, compared to most other cities. It operated as a free city. Even though it was a Greek city, primarily it acted more as a, um, as a Greek provincial city than it did a Roman city, even though we're existing in the time of the Roman Empire. Um, very free, uh, had its own imperial government, um, its own um, local government, um, those kinds of things. So a very unique city because of its influence. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was probably um, the opportunity for people uh, from the army to retire to the city and um, to take up uh, refuge there. And so they would um, utilize that freedom that they were given uh, to live however they wanted to. And, and what's fascinating is you see that in the church. You see people coming in and you end up with this uh, these false teachers coming in, and, and there is a doctrinal confusion over the second coming of Christ. Um, when we talk about the comings of Christ, we generally break it down into two aspects. His first coming, which we celebrate every year at Christmas time or Advent. Um, Advent is simply a Latin word that means the coming. And so uh, we we talk about Christ's first coming as a baby and then we talk about his second coming that is that time where he is going to come back and he is going to bring um, recompense for evil that is done there's going to be judgment that is going to occur there is going to be a reckoning that he is going to bring and so there was a group of individuals that came into the church at Thessalonica and said oh you don't know Christ isn't coming again or the other thing they would say, he's already come. 
And so the the confusion sets in, and, and the church at Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica would say, well, what about those people that have already died? What about the resurrection of dead believers? Are they going to come back to life, or are they just uh, forever, eternally in the grave? And so, um, in a sense, it the, the book of Thessalonians also deals with the secondary issue, which is, is there life after death? Is there a, a, any an eternal existence of um, the soul that exists regardless of physical life or not. It kind of deals with that. And then there was this um, tertiary issue that came from, well, if Christ has already come and we are just going to die and be worm food, then we might as well just uh, not worry about being productive. We might as well just sit and do whatever we want to. Because... um, Thessalonica was a very uh, prominent city, a very wealthy city. There is a benefactor, patron type uh, scenario that is set up where there were very, very wealthy people and they would tend to support the church and perhaps they were even supporting people who weren't willing to, to work for food or to work in the church. Either could be the case. And so this was happening where they were supplying all the needs. And so Paul is going to address that issue of idleness in addition to the doctrinal confusion over the second coming of Christ. And so we get into this issue of the rapture of the church. And um, you can't see it, but when I say rapture, it's in air finger quotes. um, Because this word doesn't actually appear uh, in the Bible, but it is a concept that, that we get through Latin translations. And so um, certainly there's nothing wrong with the word rapture. It's a perfectly good word. It's all in our understanding of that. And so that issue comes to bear. Um, and then I think uh, in a very small subset uh, idea would be the idea of persecution because the church is still under some level of persecution. And so um, we have the doctrinal confusion, the idleness, the resurrection of dead believers, the resurrection of the church, and then uh, how do we respond to persecution? And so the summary of Paul's argument is really um, in reference to Paul's authority. Paul is going to offer rebuttals because these false teachers had brought into question Paul's authority. Uh, they had come in and saying, uh, you know, here's a letter from Paul, um, or Paul's not really an apostle, you shouldn't pay attention to him. Uh, we have a word directly from God, and so Paul alludes to a a prophecy or a letter or, or a message suggested to have come from us. And so as Paul's authority is questioned, uh, one of the things that they would these false teachers would say is that he didn't care about him. He had come, he had taught them, but he didn't return. Uh, He had just gone on his own way. And so Paul sends Timothy as a stopgap measure, uh, Timothy, his his traveling companion, to go up and to check on the Thessalonians while he goes on to another area, more likely to Corinth. And so uh, he asked Timothy to bring back a report. and, And Timothy comes back and reports, well, things are really good, but... I think it's important they're questioning you and they really have issues with the second coming of Christ and some of these issues. And so Paul is going to address those 
and he addresses them by asking them to consider the proper relationships within the body in light of the gospel. In other words, how are we supposed to act towards one another in light of the gospel? That there should be a proper conduct with other Christians, and we should actually be encouraging one another about the Lord's return. When we consider the details of the return of Christ, these are things that we should encourage one another with. And so, as we think about where we are in life right now with the COVID-19 virus and the uncertainty that many people are fearing or feeling, the uh, isolation that some people are feeling, the fear, uh, fear of the future. How can we best encourage people? And I think the message of Thessalonians is there is a hope. There is an opportunity that we are all going to be raised, whether dead or alive, to be with God in eternity. We are going to be with Christ. And so people are going to misuse this in some way, shape, or form. Well, maybe I just shouldn't work at all. Maybe I, I just should let other people take care of me. And again, the, the book of Thessalonians becomes crucially important uh, in a time like this. And then finally, there's the exhortation concerning authorities within the body that they are supposed to uh, encourage those people um, and, and the leaders in the church need to be those who are teaching the truth and reminding people, bringing to reminder of these ideas about what is going to happen. And so Paul tends to get more into the eschatological problems in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, the first, uh, the book of First Thessalonians tends to deal more with these interpersonal relationships. And so sometimes in gospel living, uh, in the theology of reconciliation, people are going to think, well, it doesn't matter how I live because my salvation is secured. And Paul is reminding us in, the, in this letter that that's not the case. That in reality, we do have to live in light of the gospel. We have to live with other Christians, loving other Christians. We have to encourage people with the truths that we ourselves are being given. And where do we get those truths? As we mine the scriptures for ourselves. And we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, songs. We are able then to encourage one another about the future. And I think uh, that's the essence of Paul's message, that we should not misuse reconciliation to sit idly, but we should work all the more because we know the end result. We know God wins in the end. We know that we win because we are on God's side. Uh, so Thessal as you think about the audience, Thessalonica coincides with Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, this book was probably written from Corinth, um, so Paul was detained. He was called away. Again, he sends Timothy to check on the Thessal uh, Thessalonians, and he gets this report um, while he is in Corinth, and he writes this letter from Corinth. Um, so again, very unique book, and we're just going to stay with this. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, those particular um, issues that we discussed for First Thessalonians are going to be the same for Second Thessalonians. So I'm just going to kind of um, add two, if you will. The 
the letter is written at a second time. Um, so Paul is more than likely still in Corinth. Um, and he receives another report in which it seems like the, the doctrinal confusion has intensified. His first letter about encouragement and exhorting those authorities within the body to be an encouragement has not helped. And so uh, Paul has to write Second Thessalonians to the church. Um, and I want to look just uh, briefly at his prayer. I think it's uh, very insightful uh, in the book of Second Thessalonians as to what he's going to deal with. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Now remember, in the first letter, he wrote to them about how they ought to uh, be relating to one another. So what Paul is saying here is, your faith is strong. Your trust in God to bring about this reconciliation is strong. And your love is growing for each other. Um, this idea of sanctification, it's growing. Uh, verse 4, Therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. In other words, your faith is producing a perseverance and it's allowing you to continue on. Verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now notice, the doctrinal confusion in Second Thessalonians is about the return of Christ. And so Paul, in his thanksgiving, in his time of thanking them for something, he says that this is going to happen. So Paul doesn't say it might happen if Jesus would return. There's no uncertainty with Paul. It will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Notice again the confidence that Paul has in stating this. These things are going to happen. The reckoning is going to happen. Even though you are being persecuted and it's intensifying, and even though there is uh, a, an incredible amount of uncertainty, there is going to be a day when things are set right. And that day is going to come on the day that Jesus returns. Now, I think it's important to recognize there is some um, perhaps disparity in belief when Paul says that day is he speaking of a specific day, a 24-hour period, or is he speaking of a time frame? Uh, we're not going to get into that. That would be more an exegesis of these particular letters. Uh, we don't have time to do that. But where is Paul going to go with this? If that is true, if Jesus is coming, where is Paul going to go with this? Notice verse 11. With this in mind, 
We constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says. Our prayer for you is that God is going to count you worthy of his calling and that his power is going to be supplied to you, that he's going to fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. God's going to do this. God's going to supply this. And in doing so, you're going to be able to stand firm. And in standing firm, you are going to be able to be a glory to Christ and Christ is going to be glorified in you. And so then uh, the the summary of Paul's argument is Paul is simply going to correct their misuse or, or untrue view of eschatology, the view of end times. Paul says, um, I know that you are concerned about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did it already come? Um, is it not going to come? And so Paul goes into this section where he says some um, strange things to us. He says, first of all, that the rebellion is going to precede the day of the Lord. Uh, the apostasy, some versions may say. Um, this is not something that is taught in other places, but apparently it was something that Paul had taught to them during his time there. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but simply to say, in Paul's view, there was some kind of rebellion, apostasy, a falling away, uh, either by professing believers or by the world at large, that was going to precede this time frame that Paul talks about as the day of the Lord. Again, that could be a specific day or a time frame. Um, there are different views, but just simply knowing Paul's point is that the rebellion comes first. And in addition to the rebellion coming first, the man of lawlessness is going to precede the day of the Lord. Some versions may say the man of sin, but the idea there is a specific person who is going to be revealed uh, prior to this time when Jesus is going to be magnified. What is the second coming of the Lord? Um, the, the point that Paul is going to make is that because these things are sure, because these things are going to happen, I want you to stand firm and hold on. I don't want you to give up. And so... Paul does this uh, essentially with another prayer. In, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he said, But we, always ought, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The idea is God planned this. God chose you, and in choosing you, he has... A, an idea of how he's going to bring this plan to fulfillment. Uh, verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strength uh, strengthen you in every good deed and word. Uh, 
So while Paul is not encouraging them, in, he, he commended them for their faith and for their love, the fact that their love was growing. He said, the problem is you, you need to rest in hope. You need to stand firm on the fact that God has a plan. And in that plan, God is going to provide eternal life. And so uh, as we saw in Second um, Thessalonians, there was a misuse of reconciliation in which uh, the uh, Thessalonians were essentially using their their position in Christ to say, oh, we don't have to do anything. We're just going to sit here and rest. Rather than stand on the promises, we're going to rest on our laurels. What we find in Second Thessalonians is that they're using a a misunderstanding of the God's plan to redefine what they're going to do. They're simply going to to not. They're going to panic. They're not going to have hope. They're they're not going to care for one another. Um, they're not going to do these things. And so Paul says there is a mode of reconciliation. There is a a proper plan, a proper order in which things are going to happen. You don't need to worry yourself about what that plan is going to be. What you need to do is rest in the fact that God has this plan. And in so doing, stand firm and rest. And so uh, Paul concludes, um, by the way that you stand firm, is by participating in this uh role of reconciliation he, he, in chapter 3 of second Thessalonians second Thessalonians he says this finally brothers pray for us that the message of the lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it is with you that is a great word for us in this moment in history where we are in this chaos pray that the message of god will spread and be honored just as it has been with us that god would turn this chaos that we are living in right now with the COVID-19 virus into an opportunity for the gospel to expand and to be shared. Verse 2, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. This is something that the church needs, especially the church around the world. The church around the world experiences persecution like you and I do not. And so uh, during this time when we are uh, social distancing from one another and we are separated from one another. It gives us the opportunity to pray for the spread of the gospel and to, pr to pray for the deliverance of the church from wicked people who are persecuting God's church. Verse 3, But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And then I just want to read this final section because I think it's important for us during these, these days to recognize that we should look at our opportunities uh, where we may have to work from home to be more productive for the kingdom, um, to give us more opportunities. So Paul says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, brothers... To keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor, do, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked, day, uh, excuse me, we worked night and day, 
laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle, they are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The Paul's final closing words there. It's important that we recognize that sometimes people are going to misuse reconciliation in their lives. But if they are part of the family of God, that doesn't mean we should just reject them out of hand. Rather, we should treat them as a brother, not an enemy. And so we see in here the idea of even as we, quote-unquote, discipline someone, as we shy away from them, it's for the purpose of bringing them back into full reconciliation with the body. So as you go about your week, as you go about your days, Use them as an opportunity to pray for the expanse of the gospel, expansion of the gospel. Use it as an opportunity to study, to work, to learn, and to pray for the church around the world that God would be delivering those who are suffering most horrifically in such a way that, again, his name will be magnified, his gospel will be spread, and more people will come to faith in Christ as we rest in the fact, knowing that Jesus Christ will come. He will bring all things to a reckoning, and he will reconcile all things under the Lordship of God our Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to read, to study, to know, and to be known. God, you know our fears. You know what it is that we wrestle with. Remind us of the truth of these things that we do not even understand. We know that you have loved us. We know that you have chosen us. We know that your plan is perfect. We know that your plan will come to fruition. And so, God, we rest in your settled conviction, your settled nature, your sovereignty, in your providence, God. We pray for the expansion of the gospel during these times that those conversations that we do have would be meaningful and will be filled with hope. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. God, we pray that you will deliver them from those wicked men and women who are persecuting them. God, we ask these things in your name so that your name may be glorified your church may be built up. And God, ultimately, more people will come to reconciliation with you. It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.